Well, as Pastor Danny uh, mentioned a, a moment ago, earlier this week, I sent out an email uh, with a, a video of the song we just sang, The Rock Won't Move, which is a, a great song that I love, reminding uh, me and I think all of us of uh, the importance of grounding our lives in Christ and the confidence that comes from that. But I sent out an email this week asking us to think about where we place our confidence, where we place our assurance. And I said in the email, when, you know, when everything hits the fan, when the floor falls out from under you, uh, I typed, when everything that you hold dead is lost. Uh, I meant to type everything that you hold dear. <laughs> At least two of you were kind enough to call or to email me during the week to make sure that I meant what I said. And, uh, and so I know that at least two people read and considered that email and those questions this week. But I wonder if we all, and myself included, if we were all totally and brutally honest with ourselves, what would rise to the top of that list of things that we're grounding our lives upon? If we're just totally brutally honest with ourselves, what, what would be true about us, about where we place our confidence in this life? Now, because we're in church today, all of us who are Christians would uh, quickly answer, God, God, of course, is the source of my confidence. And, um, and that is the correct Sunday school answer, but I want the honest answer. Of course, we would say God, because we know that's, that's where our confidence ought to be. We know that our confidence ought to be in Christ and, and nothing less than him. Yet we know that often our hearts deceive us and what we know should be true of our lives isn't always. What we know should be true isn't, isn't always the case for us. The Psalms that we categorize the, as songs of confidence, which we'll look at this morning, give to us constant reminders that not only ought God to be the source of our confidence in, the life, in this life, not only should He be the foundation upon which we are resting our lives, but these psalms compel us, they convince us, they, they call us to give up every other thing that we are placing our hope in as they describe the beauty and steadfastness, the trustworthiness, the faithfulness, the glory of God who is the only sure ground for our assurance. Today we look at those psalms we call songs of confidence. The songs of confidence are those that express a reasserted trust in God despite otherwise disconcerting circumstances. Psalm 115, which we'll look at in just a moment, we find the psalmist calling the people of Israel to place their trust in the living God who remembers and blesses his people, even, dare I say, especially in times of trouble. As we consider the songs of confidence in our own lives, and Psalm 115 is an example today, as we read these and apply them to our own hearts and our own spiritual situation, we should, after reading and, and applying the psalms of confidence to our lives, find our security as we place our trust in the sovereign God of the universe. We should find no more secure place, no more secure footing for our lives, for our souls, for our salvation than in God who created and sustains the universe by the word of his power. The songs of confidence in the book of Psalms, which some people call the Psalter, the collection of 150 songs that we have in the Old Testament, the songs of confidence are characterized by a few different things. Chiefly, they're characterized by their tone of assurance in God. They don't necessarily follow a, a, a strict structure or progression like some other kinds of psalms do, but the tone of the psalm is one of just deep assurance in the person of God. 
Many of these psalms come out of a time of conflict or distress or even written in the midst of a time of conflict. We'll see that here in Psalm 115 in a moment. But even through all of that, one theme constantly comes through. The theme is this, that the presence of God sets the psalmist at peace. Irrespective of what is going on in the world around him or, or, or in the world around uh, the people of, of Israel for whom these songs were initially written, the presence of God sets his people at peace. There are several other songs of confidence that you can read in the book of Psalms, and I've given you a list of those at the bottom of your worship guide just inside that front page. There are Psalms 11, 16, 23, 27, 62... 91, 121, 125, and 131. And I would invite you to spend some time this week reading those Psalms of Confidence, uh, applying what we learn about Psalms of Confidence today, and uh, finding yourself, your own assurance in God as you read these Psalms. Let's turn our attention to God's Word then. Would you stand with me as we read Psalm 115? The psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. God bless his church as we read and study his word this morning. You may be seated. This morning from Psalm 115, we learn several things about what I would call unconditional confidence. Confidence that does not waver in the circumstances and the conditions of our lives. And from verse 1, we learn first that unconditional confidence is rooted in God himself. When everything hits the fan, when the floor falls out from under you, when everything that you hold dead, I mean dear, (laughs) is taken away from you, Unconditional confidence is rooted not in any of those things, but we can be confident when all those things leave if we are rooted in God himself. We learn from verse 1, as the psalmist says, that God alone is worthy of glory. Look how he begins the psalm. Not to us, O Lord. And in case anyone in the congregation of Israel misheard what the psalmist said the first time, he says it a second time. Not to us, but to your name give glory. The concept of God's name throughout the Old Testament often implies or conveys the meaning of his reputation, his person, his credit, his fame. 
God to your reputation, your person, to your credit, to your friend. Being, bring glory to that and not to us. And the psalmist says, God, do this for the sake of, because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God's glory is found, his fame is found, his recognition and reputation in the world is found through the people of Israel and through the church because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We've talked many times about that Hebrew word that is translated into steadfast love. It's a Hebrew word, hesed, which means loyal love, covenant love. We've seen oftentimes as we look through the Old Testament how God is covenantally faithful to his people. He's made a promise to Israel and he's going to keep it. He's made a promise of salvation to us through faith in Jesus Christ and he can be sure to keep it. His steadfast love brings him glory. So also does his faithfulness. That word faithfulness is a Hebrew word emet, which means trustworthiness or truthfulness, his unchanging nature. We can have confidence in God's glory. We can root our confidence in God's glory because he never changes and neither does his reputation, neither does his faithfulness. I find that the, 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 the fact that these are the first words out of the psalmist's mouth in this psalm, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, teaches us that giving God glory is the most important and the first non-negotiable thing of life with God. Increasing God's reputation in the world because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Giving glory to God. Communicating to others the, the infinite wonder of his majesty is the most important thing and the first non-negotiable in our life with God. Because he deserves glory. And we thrive in confidence when we do what God loves most. God loves his glory most. He wants to be glorified in the world more than anything else. He wants to be known as as the God who is faithful uh, and, and who gives steadfast love to his people more than anything else. God wants the world to know who he is. And when we do what he has made us to do, when we know and communicate what he has made us to know and communicate, specifically that God is glorious, then we thrive in confidence. Dear friend, you will find confidence in life when the chief goal of your life is to make God famous. You will find confidence in uncertain situations when you make it the chief goal of your life to make God famous. Now, to some of you, that may sound counterintuitive or just may not make sense at all. How is it that giving God glory or seeking his, his fame and reputation in the world will make me confident when I, when I get a bad health diagnosis from the doctor? Well, it'll help to give you confidence because you'll know that you are not the end of your life. Right? You are not the greatest thing in your life. And neither is your cancer or your sickness or your terminal illness. None of those things are the worst thing that can ever happen to you. They are not the end of your life either. God is the end. He is the goal. Knowing and communicating his glory to your own soul and to the world is what you have been made for. And as you enter into that kind of life where you recognize that God is glorious above all else and and not only recognize it, but embrace it and communicate it to others, you will find yourself thriving in confidence because of the glory of God that you see and is demonstrated all around you. Some of you may object to 
God's glory being the chief end of your life on the grounds that, that you would say that that makes God selfish to want himself more than anybody else or more than anything else. It's selfish of God to want his own glory more than he wants the happiness of his creatures. You might say that it is selfish of God that, that, or, or, or object to, in saying that there's something else in, in God or, or in us or in creation that is supremely good for us to pursue in life. That we should find our confidence in something uh, else, but not that, not that finding confidence in glorifying God is, is a bad thing, but maybe it's not the first thing. Well, against these objections, Jonathan Edwards, the great colonial theologian of uh, uh, pre-United uh, America, in a treatise that he wrote at the end of his life called God's End in Creation, says this, against the objection that God is selfish or that there is something else worthy of pursuing in life other than God's glory, he says this, if God be indeed so great and so excellent that all other beings are as nothing to him, and all other excellency be as nothing and less than nothing and vanity even in comparison of his. And if God be omniscient and infallible and perfectly knows that he is infinitely the most valuable being, then it is fit that his heart should be agreeable to this. It makes sense that if God knows he is the, the only being in or outside of all the universe worthy of glory, it makes sense that he would want his glory above all other things. Which is indeed, Edwards continues, the true nature and proportion of things and agreeable to this infallible and all comprehending understanding which he has of them and that perfectly clear light in which he views them. Edward says, so it is fit and suitable that he should value himself infinitely more than his creatures. God is more valuable than we are. God is more worthy of glory than we are. God's ends and his purposes, his will for all things is more worthy of pursuing than ours. It's more worthy of our, our own pursuit, but it's also more worthy of God's pursuit. If God were to pursue what we wanted in life, he would be less than his creatures, wouldn't he? He would be the servant of his creatures. And that would be to get the whole thing wrong. So God pursues his purposes and his glory in the world most and first. And he calls us, creates us, I say, to do the same. And dear friend, when we do what God has made us to do, we find deep confidence, deep assurance that we are not only doing what God has made us to do, but held securely in the God who created us, held securely in the hand of the God who created us to do that. Amen. Unconditional confidence is rooted in God himself. We learn second that unconditional confidence is found in knowing God, not just in pursuing his glory, and not just in, in, in pursuing him and his reputation in the world, but in knowing who he is. Now, I don't mean knowing God in the sense of knowing things about him. Not, not knowing facts about God. Not, not knowing maybe several passages of scripture, but knowing in a relational way, the way that husbands, you know your wives, wives, you know your husbands, parents, you know your children, friends, you know those who are close to you. In a deep, experiential, relational way, Unconditional confidence is found in knowing God that way. Yeah, we learn about who this God is. If you don't know this God, I'd like to introduce you to him this morning the way that scripture does. We learn first in verses two and three that God is sovereign and living. He is sovereign and living. By sovereign, I mean he is independent and free. There is no one who has control over God. There is no one who can tell God what to do. 
If he has a decision, if, if he gives a decree, it is his to do and no one will stop him. No one can thwart his plans. In verse 2, the psalmist asks this rhetorical question as to why the nations should taunt Israel by saying, where is their God? Why should the nations say, where is their God, says the psalmist? This question evokes and, and even parallels Psalm 42, 43, where we were just last week, where the psalmist is in a time of deep distress, reeling from the same question. People, his enemy saying, where is your God? And the psalmist is going, I don't know, but I'm still going to praise him. In Psalm, in Psalm 115, however, the nations are saying the same thing. Where is their God? And this time with the confidence that comes with knowing who God is, the psalmist gives a confident answer. He says, our God is in the heavens. You want to know where he is? That's where he is. That's where he dwells. That's where he reigns from. And by the way, he does all that he pleases. The answer to God's presence is with a precise location. Our God is in the heavens, says the psalmist. And if there were any question about what God is able to do, if there is any question about who he answers to, The psalmist affirms that the sovereign God of Israel does all that he pleases. He answers only to himself. He does all that he pleases. No one stops him from doing what he wants. God is free to compel others to do his will. He is sovereign. And when our confidence is placed in things or in people that are not God, when our assurance for life is is placed in individuals or in situations that constantly change, our confidence is immediately put at risk. People disappoint us. Stock markets fluctuate. Your own heart lies to you about what is good and right in the moment. If your confidence is in people, if it is in money, if it is in in your own self-assurance, you will fail, you will fall, others will disappoint you, your confidence will one day crumble. But if your confidence, if your assurance in this life is placed in God, who does what he pleases, there is no firmer, there is no surer place to put your confidence in this life. God is sovereign. There's no one who stops him from doing what he wants to do. And I love this. He is living. As opposed to the idols of the people that taunt Israel, God is living and active. Verses 4 through 8 demonstrate this to us in beautiful fashion. I almost, and maybe I shouldn't, but I almost read these verses with a little bit of sarcasm in my voice as the psalmist speaks about the gods of the people who who taunt Israel. You say, they're idols. So our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak. They have uh, eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. Noses but they can't smell. They have hands but don't feel. And feet but do not walk. And they can't even make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. These idols that other people worship that are not the living God, these things that are not God that are worshipped by others are creations, not creators. They are are made in the likeness of men, not in the likeness of the one who creates men in his own image. Though these idols resemble living man or living creatures, they are dead and they are worthless. Isaiah, the prophet in Isaiah 44, verses 12 through 17, gives a stinging rebuke of idolaters. Moreover, the psalmist says that those who make and worship these idols become like them. The idols are 
lifeless, and so are those who make them and who worship them. One scholar says that these idolaters, these who worship uh, created idols, who worship things that are not the sovereign and living God, are like the living dead. They are, the, 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 the image here is of idolaters being like spiritual zombies. Or think about that a moment. Because their gods are dead, so also is their spirit. And though on the outside they have the appearance of life, like zombies do, walking around, eating everyone they run into. On the outside they have the appearance of life, inside, or the whole purpose of their life is, is only to consume stuff with no satisfaction of their appetite. And yet they still eventually decay and fall apart. There are some of you who are probably walking dead fans. I'm not condoning that that show or anything. But you see how throughout the course of that series, the zombies uh, get more and more rotten. They decay more and more as every season goes along. They're still trying to eat people, but the flesh is falling off of their bones. They they are consuming, but there is no life given by it. This is the same with those who worship, those who place their confidence in things that are not God. Those who trust things that are not the sovereign and living God are spiritual zombies. They walk around with no life in them, having the appearance of life on the outside, consuming everything that is spiritual, everything that should bring nourishment, and yet there is no life because what they have placed their trust in is not alive. Dear friend, this morning... Knowing that unconditional confidence comes in knowing God. We need to walk. We need to move toward relationship with Him. So friend, if you are lacking in confidence today, if if you do not know the confidence that comes in knowing God the way that the psalmist in Psalm 115 knows God, then do this today. Remove the idols of your heart that are causing you to be a spiritual zombie. Remove those things from your heart. Remove them from your life and then be born again by the sovereign and living God. That's what we need. What we need, dear friends, is not a better way to live. What we need is new spiritual life. Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were spiritual zombies until God got a hold of you and brought you to life by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of this call to remove the idols of our heart, to be born again by the sovereign and living God, of that late night conversation that Jesus had with a a Jewish teacher named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we learn of this man as a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. If you're walking around like a spiritual zombie with no life in you, you'll never know, you'll never inherit, you'll never be a citizen of God's kingdom. You've got to be born again. You've got to have life imparted into you. You've got to have an infusion of life from outside of you coming into you. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Thinking very literally, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When you're born of the Spirit, something happens inside of you. God does a work within you, bringing your soul to life in a way that it wasn't before. Nicodemus said to Jesus, well, how can these things be? You see him still struggling to understand what Jesus is saying. And Jesus answered, are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You're spiritual zombies still trying to consume other things and there's still no life in you. If I had told you, he says in chapter 3, verse 12, earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus continues in verse 16 of chapter 3. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That everyone who believes in him shall be born again of the Spirit. That whoever believes in him shall no longer be a spiritual zombie, but shall know the living God by the life that God has put into him, and he shall walk in spiritual life. Dear friend, remove the idols of your heart. Be born again by the sovereign and living God. Know the God who created you to love his glory, to pursue his glory, and to be made whole and alive by his work in you. We learn third that unconditional confidence is found not only in knowing God, but, and I love this, in being known by God. Verses 9 and 11 and 12 to 13 are each repeating the same two concepts to three different groups. In verses 9 through 11, look in your Bibles. The concept is trust the Lord. It's an imperative command, right? Do this. Put your confidence in Him. In verses 12 and 13, the concept that is repeated is that the Lord will bless you. And in both sets of verses, 9 through 11 and 12 through 13, there are the same three groups that are addressed. Israel, the whole people of Israel, the house of Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, the first among the priests of the tribe of Levi. So calling the leaders of of worship in the people of Israel to these things. And then third and finally, God-fearers. Those who may not be Jewish by nationality, but who are worshiping the God of Israel. Israel, house of Aaron, all you who fear the Lord, trust him. And he'll bless you, Israel. He'll bless you, house of Aaron. He'll bless all of you who fear him, both small and great. This combined message between these uh, verses, trust the Lord, he will bless you. This message, trust the Lord, he will bless you, is a wonderful message to to be sure. And it is true. But go with me a step deeper, would you, to see why the Lord is to be trusted and why it is that he blesses. It's one thing to say, trust the Lord, he will bless you. It's a whole other thing to know why those things are true. The Lord is to be trusted because he himself, as the psalmist says, is our help and our shield. God does not merely provide help, provide protection to his people. He is these things. Right? The psalmist does not say, God gives them help and shield in time of trouble. No, he is their help. He is their shield in time of trouble. He's not a help and a shield 
to the enemies of his people, to those who are his enemies, but to those whom he has adopted as his children. The truth of the matter is that God knows everyone and he knows the hearts of everyone. He knows those who trust in him and those who in their hearts are still rebelling against him. To know who God is, is one thing. To know facts about him, even to know what his character is like, is one thing. But to know God as the one who has caused you to be born again, to know him in such a way as to trust him, right? To place your confidence in him, to say that whatever happens, I know that God's got me. To know God that way is quite another thing. To know him in such a way as to trust him, that is what it is not only to know God, but to be known by him. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Ever before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. See the wonder that comes upon the psalmist as he reflects upon all that God knows about him and that God knows him. See also how blessing comes from God to those that he has remembered. So not only those that he knows, but also those he has remembered. Verse 12 says, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. That word remember which appears often in the Old Testament with regard to God, God remembering his people. It does not mean that God has forgotten them. It does not mean God has forgotten you or some, somehow suddenly been reminded of who you are. Oh yeah, I, I forgot about little Johnny down there. Ooh, good thing I remembered who he was. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what it's communicating when it says the Lord has remembered us. Rather, it means that God is acting toward us. He's acting toward his people in the same loving and faithful ways that he acted with his people in the past. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your faithfulness and steadfast love. When the Lord remembers his people, he's acting toward them with covenant faithfulness yet once again. In the Old Testament, this idea of God remembering his people seems always to have a reminder of the promises that God has made to his people through uh, certain figures like Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and to the prophet Jeremiah even. These major promises that God makes to his people throughout Israelite history. When, When the psalmist says the Lord has remembered us, he is calling to mind all of the promises that God had made that he's being faithful to answer. Promises to be their God and for they to be his people. Promises to save them from their sin. Promises to make his spirit to dwell in them. The Lord remembered us, the psalmist says. We are known by him. What a blessing, what a joy, what a person to put your trust in. The living and powerful, unlimited God of the universe who, dear friend, knows you. Know this morning that there is no greater source of confidence than to be known by God himself. There's no greater sense of assurance. There's no no greater sense of, of safety, of security in this life or any other life to come than in being known by God. 
The fact that he has searched us and known us. That he knows when we sit down and when we rise up. That he discerns our thoughts from afar. This knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is, it is way beyond what we could comprehend. But scripture tells us that it is true and it is good. And it is a source of our confidence. The great theologian J.I. Packer. And his book that I cannot recommend enough. Knowing God says this. J.I. Packer writes. What matters supremely therefore is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. I am graven on the palms of His hands. I am never out of His mind. All my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative, His ongoing action to know me. I know Him because He first knew me, and He continues to know me. He knows me as a friend. He knows me as one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And there is no no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Dear friends, unconditional confidence is found in being known by God. By God who knows you this way. And here's the wonderful truth. That God being infinite and all-powerful and all-knowing and always present never runs out of attention to give to you. Never runs out of space in his mind to think of you, to know you. The, The cup of his mind is never overflowing. There's always space for more knowledge of who you are. There's always more power within his hands to keep you and to hold you. Dear friend, be known by God today and be confident. Finally, we learn that Unconditional confidence results in praise to God. If you are confident in God, no matter what may come, the result of that life, the result of your confidence in God, like we see in the life of the psalmist and the people of Israel, that will result in praise and worship to God. Verses 14 through the end of the psalm teach us this. As the psalmist closes the psalm, he prays a prayer of blessing over those that he is leading toward confident worship. He says, may the Lord give you and your children increase. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, as for our response to this God who blesses, it is not up to the dead to respond to God. Do you see that in verse 17? The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. The psalmist is not here In verse 17, teaching any kind of specific doctrine about the present spiritual existence of those who have died. Okay, so let's not read too deeply into what he's saying. Remember, the Psalms are poetry. They're figurative in language. They're meant to be understood in a figurative way. So the psalmist is not declaring anything specific about what happens to us after we die. Only that dead people cannot open their mouths to praise the Lord on this earth any longer. But as verse 18 states, as long as there is breath in our lungs, as long as there is blood flowing through our veins, our voices will be raised in praise to this sovereign, free, living, knowable, and all-knowing God who has remembered and blessed his people with confidence to face any trial. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Most often in life, our actions are driven by what we think and how we feel. We respond to situations, to conflict, to to threats against our own life based on how we think and what we feel. 
For instance, we, in one sense, we worship because we know that God is worthy of praise. Mentally, we know he is worthy of receiving glory. And we have felt the confidence of knowing and being known by him. And so thus we worship out of what we know and how that has moved our affections. We worship. Right thinking leads to right action. Almost everything in life flows through this progression. Head, heart, hands. We receive information. We, we embrace it. We understand it. We allow that information to change how we feel, how we orient our lives around certain things. And then we take that new orientation and we work it out in the things that we do. So we know that God is worthy of worship. We have embraced him as the only one that is worthy of worship. And then we act in worship. But what about the times when we don't feel confident in God? What about the times that, that, that praise to God doesn't well up in us because we aren't sure if he can be trusted to work through our suffering and deliver us from evil? What happens when we know what is true, but we just don't feel it today? In those times, we have to flip the script of head, heart, hands, and, and if I can put it this way, fake it till we make it. Sometimes, now the majority of times, things work this way, head, heart, hands. But sometimes we've got to go hands, head, heart. I worship God and in worshiping God, I realize who he is. And in realizing who he is, he changes my heart, my orientation, and it leads me to more worship. But sometimes I don't feel like worshiping God, so I don't. But in those, friend, in those situations, friends, what we need to do more than anything is to say, my heart deceives me, and though I don't feel like worshiping God, I know he's worthy of worship, so I'm going to do it anyway and trust that God will take care of my heart issue. Yeah, amen. The times when you aren't confident in God are the best times to praise him for making you confident. I know it sounds illogical, and I know it sounds backwards, but, but just consider again how this works. Confidence in God is rooted in His glory above all things. And then it is found in knowing and being known by this glory of God, by this glorious God, so that we give Him glory, so that we worship Him with our lives. And so if you don't feel confident in the Lord, it makes total sense to get back to your roots, to get back to giving Him glory, even if you don't feel in the moment like you can. And in praising God, dear friend, you will quickly find the help of Scripture that you, are being, uh, that, that you are being reminded of how God has made himself known to you. And in knowing God, you will come to be reminded that God has known you and you will be thrust back into this cycle of worshiping God, knowing who he is and how he has changed your heart. Before you realize, you'll soon be walking again in bold assurance that God really is supremely worthy of worship, that he has truly caused you to be born again if you have turned from your sin and placed your confidence in Jesus, his son, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and was raised from the dead to not only defeat sin and death, but to give us confidence of a life yet to come, a life like this one, but with glory unfading in the presence of God as we place our trust in him. And that the infinitely powerful creator of the universe calls you his child. So you may know that God is worthy of worship. But you may not feel confident in in, in this season of life and the trials, the difficulties, the suffering you face. And because you don't feel confident in the Lord, you're hesitant to worship. Dear friend, let me encourage you. Let me write you a pastoral prescription today. Worship God anyway. 
and find him fixing through your worship, even when you don't feel like it, those heart problems. Find him fixing and shoring up and reestablishing in your life through worship, even when you don't feel like you can do it, the things that you know for certain about who he is. And find yourself being reminded by him that he knows you. The truth of who God is, that he is our creator, infinitely worthy of glory, who, who has sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for the sins of his creatures, who he made to know and to love and to be worshipped by. This same God who sends his son to die for our sins, who raises Christ from the dead, gives us the hope and the confidence of eternal life as we place faith in Jesus. And knowing these things should drive us to worship even when we don't feel like it. These truths of who God is and what he has done, even when we don't feel like it, ought to be the foundation of our lives, ought to be the things that we rest our lives on, even, even when, when life doesn't feel like it's going so well. Amen. So if that's you this morning, friend, if you know that God is worthy of worship, but you just don't feel the confidence to worship him today, you've got too many things, too many worries, too many cares, too much stuff in your cup then this morning, release your worries and cares and just rest in God through worship. As hard as it may seem, as impossible as it may, be, as it may appear to do, let go of the things that are clouding your mind and just worship God this morning. Even if it's hard for you to see how he is glorious, worship him for it anyway. Ask him to open your eyes, to open your ears, to soften your heart, to see his presence uh, around you, to see his glory in the world. Ask God in worship to remind you of the confidence he has given to you in Jesus. Release your worries and cares by resting in God through worship and there find confidence worth building your life upon. There's a man named Edward Moat who a couple hundred years ago or so grew up in England in a non-Christian home, grew up in, in pubs and, and, and in bars where his parents would take him. And he, as a young man, a, a middle, middle adolescent, began attending church on his own with some other friends and was soon there as he was attending church, convinced by the preaching of the Bible that Jesus Christ was the only sure source of forgiveness of sins. That Jesus was the only means of, of having peace with God and peace of heart and mind. And so he, in that moment that day, gave his life over to Jesus. Now in time, as he grew, uh, he became a pastor in his own right. And one day, as he enjoyed doing, writing, sitting down, writing a uh, writing hymns, writing songs, writing poetry. Not everybody did this. He's a little bit special. Edward Moat sat down and, uh, and wrote out the words to the hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Edward Moat first sang this hymn, at the bedside of an ailing church member as she uh, was preparing to die. 
He didn't have a tune written to it at the time, and so I'm not sure what tune he picked to sing it to. I'm not sure if the tune that we have it today uh, is the one that it was first sung to. I wonder if maybe he, was, he put it to the tune of one of his old uh, pub songs. I don't know, but that would be interesting. But as he continued pastoring, uh, he uh, pastored well in England, and on his deathbed, He wrote down these words of confidence to his children, to his family, to his church that he was leaving as he soon would die. He said, I think I am going to heaven. Yes, I am nearing port. The truths I have preached, the gospel, the truths I have preached, I am now living upon. And he says, dear friends, they will do to die upon. Ah, the precious blood which takes away all our sins. It is this which makes peace with God. Dear friends, by worshiping God, we not only stir ourselves to renewed confidence in the saving power, the saving person of Jesus Christ, but we shore up, we strengthen the confidence that the pains and sufferings of this life so often threaten. This morning, friend, be encouraged Christian, find your assurance resting upon the solid rock, solid rock that is Jesus. And in response to his wonderful word, which teaches us how to be confident, worship him in confidence this morning. Let's pray.